This is Guns and Butter. from a nurse who was in high-level administration um, told me over dinner, this was not a professional uh, meeting, she told me that the policy for most hospitals in, in the USA is that if the patient is not vaccinated within 24 hours of their hospital stay, that the hospital stay is not reimbursed for the entire time. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Suzanne Humphreys. Today's show, Honesty versus Policy, vaccines, and the medical system. Dr. Suzanne Humphreys is a medical doctor, internist, and board-certified nephrologist currently in private practice. She is co-author of Dissolving Illusions, Disease, Vaccines, and the Forgotten History. Currently, the California legislature is fast-tracking two vaccine Senate bills. SB 277 will eliminate the personal belief and religious exemptions from vaccines required for children to attend public and private school. SB 792 will require CDC-prescribed adult immunization of child care workers with the exception of flu vaccine. Today we review some of the elements of Dr. Suzanne Humphrey's video, Honesty versus Policy, available on her YouTube channel with a special emphasis on vaccine safety. She continues to dispel the mythology surrounding vaccination. Dr. Suzanne Humphreys, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. You are a board-certified nephrologist, a researcher, and author. What is a nephrologist? Could you describe your medical training and experience as a practicing physician? Yes, certainly. Uh, so I'm a medical doctor, MD after my name, and I went to university just like most doctors, although some programs are just six-year programs nowadays, but I went and earned a bachelor's degree in physics at Rutgers University, and then I went to Temple University School of Medicine and earned my MD, and then I went on to a three-year residency program and studied internal medicine and became certified for internal medicine, and then I studied for two more years back down in Philadelphia for my certification in nephrology, which is kidneys. So it's basically a subspecialty of the human body in one organ system. As I understand it, you have spent more than 5,000 hours researching vaccines. What got you interested in the vaccine issue? And how has your perspective changed over the years? That is, what is what was your experience as a kidney specialist working in a hospital? Okay. Regarding vaccines, you mean? Well, it's actually very interesting. I'm always amused by the thousands of hours because I have no idea, but I can tell you how many hours I spent studying vaccines before 2009, um, about um, maybe 15 minutes. Okay. So that's how, many, that's how many minutes I spent studying vaccines before then, because the medical school curriculum, uh, at least uh, in the years that I was attending medical school, included nothing about vaccines. And I, I think that's an intentional omission. Um, when I did my pediatric rotation, I was handed a sheet of paper with the pediatric vaccine schedule and told this is when they're due and to give them at any opportunity that you can give them. And I didn't think twice about it because, you know, when you're in medical school, it's like you're, you're swallowing water from a fire hose and you just try to keep up. And the critical thinking just doesn't really happen uh, for most of us in medical 
medical school. I suppose there are some people with IQs of 160 that can handle huge volumes of information and they're able to think critically while swallowing from the fire hose, but most of us don't. And so I continued practicing and I continued doing, you know, all of the quote, best practice protocols that I was um, indoctrinated to do. And um, continued in the, um, I went on and specialized mostly in adults, although I did do a lot of pediatric nephrology. It's just because there are so few pediatric nephrologists. There are more these days, but um, it's far fewer than there are for adults because supposedly children don't have as much kidney disease, but unfortunately we're starting to see much more kidney disease in children, and I think there's a very good reason for that. So um, in 2009, I had been giving vaccines to my adult kidney patients. Um, I'd been giving them hepatitis B vaccine per dialysis protocol because their blood products are everywhere. You know, blood is always squirting and spilling. And so, hey, it seemed like a good idea to me to not get for people to get hepatitis B. I got my series of hepatitis B vaccines. Um, I was giving flu shots per dialysis protocol in 2009. And then uh, that was the year where there were two separate flu shots. And um, there was the H1N1 shot that was separate from the seasonal shot. So people, a lot of people basically got a double dose of the um, influenza vaccine that year. And I suspect that that's why that year is highlighted and why I saw the problems that I saw. And so, um, there were a few patients that came into the hospital. They were started, um, you know, we, I work in a partnership with, with several other physicians who evaluated these people, worked them up, put them on dialysis. And when I came to round on them, they said to me, um, I was fine until I had that vaccine. And I said, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? And so I looked up their kidney history and they had had normal kidneys in December of um, of 2000, and it was probably 2008 actually, and then by January 2009, they're sitting there on dialysis with a catheter in their neck, um, you know, shrugging, what happened to me? And all the notes in the medical chart said, uh, no cause determined for kidney failure. We look through the, you always look through medications first. As a nephrologist, you'll almost always find a, an appropriately prescribed drug that's shut the kidneys down, often temporarily, sometimes permanently. And uh, there was no, nothing to imply, you know, we asked about toxins, we did ultrasound of the kidneys, they, they weren't shrunken, they weren't blown up, and so everyone just kind of shrugged. There was no urine to even do a, really a test on because they, they weren't making urine. And um, by the time I rounded, I, I looked at it and I thought, well, the patient's telling me it was the vaccine. Um, let me look at the ingredients of, of the vaccine. Let, let me see if there's any case reports out there. And sure enough, you know, there, there, you know, the light bulb went off and I saw what the ingredients were in, in the multi-dose flu shots, had mercury, there's formaldehyde, you know, there's a whole cocktail. Um, and then you look in the medical literature and there are just lots and lots of case reports of all kinds of um, kidney failure that happens within days or weeks of vaccination. And so when I brought that up to the administration, thinking that they would be interested, um, I was met with such um, disbelief and resistance. Um, I was met with questions like, well, what about smallpox and what about polio? And I looked at them and I said, well, what about smallpox and polio? We're talking about a flu shot right now. We're talking about a patient who said, I was fine until I had that shot. They became violently ill afterwards and here they are on dialysis. What about that? And so I kept getting hit with what about polio and what about smallpox? So I was like, okay, what about polio and smallpox? Because guess what? I knew only the sound bites that I was told about polio and smallpox, just like all of us only know. And so I went and researched and, you know, it was basically like a bunny trail that I've never come out of because um, – 
the history of polio and the history of that vaccine is enough to make um, a series of movies about. I mean, it is just so dark and weird and bizarre. And you kind of lose your innocence, you know, when you start to understand what happened with that vaccine. You know, you, nothing looks the same to you anymore. And that's essentially what happened to me is everything started to look different. The whole field of medicine started to look different. The whole media, you know, when I found out what really happened with Andrew Wakefield and what the media said happened, the media is never going to look the same to me again. I can't watch CNN. I can't, I, you know, that used to be my news source. So um, it was a very dark time for me. Um, everything became inside out and backwards and kind of remained that way. And so I've continued to do my research. I've written a book called Dissolving Illusions, Disease, Vaccines, and the Forgotten History, which is co-authored with Roman Bistrionic. And what that book shows is the mortality rates from the dis common diseases that we're told that we were all saved from by vaccines. And the mortality rates for so many of them, and so, so for measles and for whooping cough, for instance, the mortality rates were, were down by over 98 or 99% um, in the USA and the UK using the commonly, most commonly used um, vital statistics that are available to the public. So Roman made these graphs um, just to depict the death rates and how the death rates were down before the vaccines and that the vaccines actually had um, probably very little, I'm not going to say nothing, but almost minuscule um, help to do with that um, further declining in about 0.3% in mortality um, after the invention of the vaccines. So we sit there and we say, well, why? You know, what happened before vaccines for this to happen? And when you understand what happened with humanity, you know, humans create their own problems and then they come along and they solve them with sometimes um, unwise and um, unhealthy, deadly solutions. And that's exactly what happened with vaccination. There was a perceived need for vaccination. People were dying left, right, and center from smallpox, from, from measles, from whooping cough, very high mortality rates. But if you look at the conditions people were living in, if you look at what hospitals were like, you know, hospitals were places most people knew to avoid back then. Unfortunately, that wisdom has been lost. But most people knew to avoid them um, because their babies were getting eaten by rats when they went into a hospital. So it was a dangerous place to be. There were infectious disease hospitals, which was a really good idea back then because um, they separated the infectious diseases. And so we go through and talk about what happened, the Land Enclosure Acts in England, where people were living happily and healthfully out in the countryside, and all of a sudden the landowners said, you can't live here anymore. Everybody was swept into the city, and there wasn't the accommodations for them. And so they lived in, in squalor that you and I can't even imagine. Maybe if you go to the worst places in India now, you could imagine, but you and I, uh, most, most people, I should say, I don't want to assume anything, um, but most of us can't imagine the conditions that people were living in then. Um, it's simply illegal to live that way in the USA today. Um, child labor laws were horrible. Infant mortality rates were high, um, mostly because of doctors. And so um, children were living off of sausage made from sawdust and rotten meat. Um, it, was, it was really bad. They were drinking sewage. So once that part of society was improved. We saw a vast improvement in the death rate from diseases. We saw, in some cases, a decrease in the incidence of diseases. But in diseases like measles, we didn't really see much of a decline in incidence. Measles continued. And so the only thing the measles vaccine really did was it decreased the transmission of measles in the population. But it did something that really did us no favors, which was that it took measles out of the population that handles it best, the 2 to 15-year-olds, and it put it into the population at a lower rate that doesn't handle as well, which is the young babies and the older people. So that's kind of a, a really quick synopsis. 
Is it true that sick patients in hospitals are being vaccinated? And what types of vaccinations are being given? <laughs> right. Okay. So that's the whole thing I left out, didn't I? Um, yes. So after I woke up to the to the problem that vaccines actually can cause, not just kid, you know, it's pretty rare for vaccine to cause kidney problems. I don't, I don't want to portray it as, you know, oh, you're you're such a high risk. No, it's you probably have to have an underlying susceptibility. It's just like any toxin causing kidney disease. But what I did see is, you know, other problems with vaccines. Um, and I saw a really unscrupulous um, and I think callous and haphazard use of vaccines probably to support policy more than to support um, actual health promotion. So after I saw this in the outpatient population and I was denied you know, my suspicion, I started to look at the inpatient population because you can check blood work on them every day, you can track their kidney function, you can see when the vaccine was given. And what I saw was that I was being consulted on patients who, again, had, quote, idiopathic kidney failure that occurred in the hospital. And so, you know, everybody's running around with their magnifying glass trying to figure out what happened. And here's a vaccine that was given within 24 hours of the kidney shutdown. And so, so I started to, to look at the policy and what was going on. And, and um, I was pretty much enraged one day when I went up to see my patient, who I had admitted to do a biopsy on her kidney because she had long-standing um, acute severe inflammatory kidney disease and her kidney function was declining and I needed to know what was going on there. And before I got up to the floor to see her, she had been given a flu shot um, with my name on the order. And so um, I, I just thought, well, there must be a mistake. And I said, how could this happen? It has my name on the order. I didn't order this. I would never order this on my patient who already has huge amounts of inflammation. It's at high risk for bleeding after the biopsy. And, and, and vaccines change your coagulation problem. What happened? And so the nurse says to me, well, this is our hospital policy, is that... Um, is that you know anyone that comes into the hospital that's conscious and can take a consent form from a pharmacist who gives them one piece of paper with a little bit of CDC information saying that vaccines are probably safe no matter what, but check with your doctor, um, they can consent to have a flu shot or a pneumonia shot, and we will give it to them as soon as possible on their first hospital stay. And I thought, what a backwards, I cannot even believe this. It's not safe to bring my patients into the hospital anymore if this is the policy. And so they said, oh, they had a meeting. They said, don't worry, Dr. Humphreys. We've solved the problem for you. What we're going to do now is we're going to put the administrator's name on the order and not your name. And I said, no, 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 no. That, that doesn't solve the problem because the problem is that you're administering inflammatory substances to people who are acutely ill, having heart attacks, chemotherapy with cancer, with kidney failures. One guy I saw with a consent form, he was about to get his flu and pneumonia shots. I saw people with sepsis, pneumonia, congestive heart failure, active heart attacks, mild active heart attacks getting vaccinated on their first hospital day. And I said, guys, you know, I cannot find any justification for this policy. Please consider waiting until discharge day to give these vaccines. And they said, we'll have a meeting and we'll discuss it. And I said, can I come? And they said, no. So they had their meeting and they came back and they told me that the policy will stay as is and that I was confusing the nursing staff by discontinuing orders on my patients when I was consulted on them and when I was admitting them. And they told me that I should do my own study, that they would support me if I did my own study looking at kidney failure rates in vaccinated people. And, and at that point I said to them, look, I have a choice now. I can spend 10 years of my life trying to do a study that has statistical significance that would be retrospective the way you're describing it and that nobody would care about. It would be highly criticized and I would need a huge number of people to look at this disease rate after vaccination. Or I can leave and I can continue my research and try to do what I can do to, um, to alert people of this humongous problem that we now have. 
And um, so I gave my notice. Um, it took about a year and a half to replace me, and I stayed, I stayed until I was replaced, and then I quietly left and have been researching the issues not only in the adult um, um, vaccination problems, but childhood vaccination problems as well. I'm speaking with physician, researcher, and author Dr. Suzanne Humphreys. Today's show, Honesty versus Policy, Vaccines and the Medical System. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Why would ill people in hospitals require vaccination? Well, that's what I said. Um, they said because the flu um, can be very deadly and um, the, the pneumonia can be very deadly and that it's an opportunity to give the shot as soon as possible, that it can take two weeks for it to have activity and start to work. And it was very important that these people got their flu shots when they were available to give them. They said that they were safe and effective. Um, they said that any kind of failure problems that I was seeing, that the denominator was so huge that of course you're gonna see some background problems and you can't prove that it is related to the vaccine. Um, and they just felt that, um, that the risk-benefit ratio favored giving vaccines to all patients on their first hospital stay if they had not yet been vaccinated. Um, and what I later found out, and at this point, nothing was making sense to me. And um, I later found out that from a nurse who was in high-level administration um, told me over dinner, this was not a professional uh, meeting, she told me that the policy for most hospitals in, in the USA is that if the patient is not vaccinated within 24 hours of their hospital stay, that the hospital stay is not reimbursed for the entire time. And so it's probably really was a, a political and financial um, underlying uh, reason for this, for this rule rather than an actual health, which I suspected from the beginning. But when I asked my administration how much the hospital gets reimbursed for vaccinating and having their rates high, there was no answer that was forthcoming. So I, I realized that that was, that was the reason. So unless they, they put a, a long description as to why the patient wasn't vaccinated or if they had already stated that they were vaccinated, but if the chart was left empty in that area, that the entire hospitalization, the hospital would lose out on their, their financial payment. And so I think they didn't want to take the risk of waiting to the last hospital day because sometimes patients are discharged early and they're afraid that some things can slip through the cracks and because it had to be within the first 24 hours in order for this policy to be fulfilled. How would that work, Dr. Humphreys? Was she implying that the insurance companies would not reimburse? I think it had more to do with, um, with Medicare rather than the private insurance companies. Oh. But we're getting into an area that I really know, know very little about, but that's what the nurse said, that it was mostly the public funding that wouldn't be given to the hospital if that was the case. I don't believe that this was a private insurance policy condition. Are kidney patients particularly affected by vaccines? I believe they are. Even if you just have diabetes and have normal kidney function, um, if your kidney function is measured as normal, um, diabetics are already in a high state of inflammation for lots of reasons. And this is well-known and well-accepted uh, scientific fact. And so if you add another inflammatory substance, you're, you're kind of like you're overriding the threshold of what 
the entire system can actually tolerate. And, and most people do tolerate vaccines okay. If you, if you look within the first 24 hours, which is what most studies look at, and if you compare it to placebo, which most studies, placebo is another vaccine, then you're not going to really notice much of a huge difference in the majority of people that are tested. And that's why most of the vaccine studies look like the vaccines are safe. But if we were to follow people out, say, for four to six weeks after they were vaccinated and compare them to a saline placebo, um, then I believe, I don't believe it because of a religious reason. I believe it because I've got some scientific studies in front of me that actually used a placebo and followed out for longer. And they found a very big difference in the, um, the rates of non-influenza infections. And I believe that we would also find um, vasculitis, autoimmune diseases, and you know acute kidney failure within that time frame because you're already dealing with people who have some underlying inflammation in their system. That There's already something that's gone awry. There's just been a short circuit somewhere for the kidneys to fail. Most kidneys fail secondarily because there's something else going on in the system. Sometimes it can be a primary failure. Um, you know, if there's an autoimmune disease that appears to just attack the kidneys primarily. But this is something that I've only discovered recently. But if you've been one of the people that had SV40 giving to you, the simian virus 40 was a virus that came in the polio vaccines in the 1950s. The human population was not exposed to this virus except for in, in the most remote circumstances up, up until that point. And because of an oversight, um, because they didn't know how to test for this virus and they were culturing the polio vaccines on monkey kidney cells where this virus lives with, with no problem, um, there, there was an infection of the polio vaccines with simian virus 40. And they called it simian virus 40 because it was the 40th virus that they found in these, these kidneys. And now there are over 100 that they found. But simian virus 40 is a very special virus. Um, some of the most prominent virologists in the world call it the perfect war machine. And that's because it's got several factors that decrease your resistance to cancer and increase your susceptibility to cancer. And so um, when that virus came along for the ride, what we started to see was an increase in different kinds of cancer. There were scientists in the 1950s who were, you know, raising the red flag and trying to point it out. And, and the powers that be at the time, the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, categorically ignored them because the steamroller had already been let go and they weren't going to stop. Um, they had got the public so hyped up about this polio vaccine that they were not going to stop at anything. So um, it turns out that up until the year 2000, there's evidence that the simian virus 40 was still in the polio vaccines and that most of us were exposed either through the polio vaccines or from each other because we can pass it to each other. Um, you, I could pass it to you and you can pass it to your children. And so because many of us have this virus in our systems, it doesn't necessarily cause a problem. But what it does is it can make your kidneys more susceptible to any kind of injury. And there's scientific information that shows that people who are infected with simian virus 40 can be more susceptible to drug injuries. And I believe they can also be more susceptible to vaccine injuries that can affect the kidneys. Um, so that's just one example of how somebody can be more susceptible to something than, than if you had never been exposed to a problem or if you didn't have an underlying problem. So I believe that if you're you know, a fetchingly healthy human being that came into the world the usual way and was breastfed for the right amount of time and hadn't been attacked by antibiotics and you know, didn't do drugs and smoke and, and ate a healthy diet and were happy and healthy and had faith in, in something, <laughs> then you would your system could tolerate a flu shot. But most people walking around don't have that luxury. There are so many people now that were born by C-section that puts you at a disadvantage. There are so many people like me who never saw a drop of breast milk. There are so many people who were raised on antibiotics and their microbiome is, is 
so different than what it should be. There are people walking around that are obese, that have diabetes, that have chronic inflammatory disorders, that are on medications that put their kidneys at a susceptibility level, that I believe that, that when you put a vaccine into them, that's when you've got your wild card. And sometimes it doesn't happen within the 20 minutes that you're asked to stay for monitoring. Sometimes it can take, it can take um, hours, or it can take days, or it can take weeks. And in some cases with autoimmune diseases, it can even take months to manifest because it smolders. You know, you kind of set off a little spark and then you get a little bonfire that doesn't really become obvious until later. And a lot of kidney disease is actually silent and people will present, you know, with all-out kidney failure and having had no symptoms at all before they got to me. So that's one of the problems with kidney disease is that it's often called a silent killer because it doesn't really get symptomatic until you're down to around 20% or maybe actually even 5% depending on your underlying health. So it's, it's, a lot of it's kind of veiled behind the layers of, of um, protection that, that's built into our systems. And so you don't really notice the problems until they become really severe. Now, Dr. Humphreys, you've brought up SV40. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. Um, you have pointed out that viruses were introduced into the human population in the 1950s via vaccination that are causing cancer right. and other problems. We are told that the cancer-causing monkey virus, SV40, that contaminated the polio vaccine in the 1950s and early 60s was eliminated from the polio yes. vaccine by 1963. Have you discovered right. evidence that this is not really the case? Well, I discovered um, the evidence that the scientists, the virologists discovered, um, and what they found, um, there was uh, a researcher named Dr. Michelle Carboni. He's an Italian um, virologist. He's world-renowned. And he, there's actually an incredible book that I recommend people read if they want to know more about this, and it's called The Virus and the Vaccine. And so uh, what they basically found with that virus is that if you don't test for it in the proper way, um, that you can't, you can't find it in the vaccines. If you look for it just in the vaccines, that's not enough. You have to actually find it in the seed stock, S-E-E-D. And what, what happened is that while they may have stopped using the vaccines that contained the outright high amounts of simian virus 40, um, the seed stock that they were using to create vaccines still contained it. And um, there was a, a doctor named Dr. Herbert Ratner from Oak Park, Illinois, back in the 1950s, who happened to have been a bit of a pack rat. Um, and he was actually a very smart, intuitive um, physician. He was the, the head of the Department of Public Health at the time. And he saved some polio vaccine and he put it in the freezer. And he um, gave it to Dr. Michelle Carboni when the technology was available to test for simian virus 40. And what Dr. Carboni found with the new um, testing that's able to detect simian virus 40 at very low levels is that it was, it was in those vaccines that, um, that were supposedly didn't have it anymore after the problem was supposedly taken care of. And when they looked further, they found that there are there two different, um, different types of simian virus 40. There's one type that you can detect early on. There's another type that you can detect later. And if you don't have the proper testing devices and, and if you 
wait long enough for it to multiply and become evident that you'll miss it. Um, so Dr. Carboni started looking in the Italian vaccines, and he's um, documented in his medical research papers that the um, SV40 was still in the Italian vaccines up through the 1990s. And then there, there's uh, an attorney named Stanley Copps who really um, looked into this uh, in detail. And he, uh, he reported that there was evidence that, I believe it was Letterly, a pharmaceutical company, that they had not eliminated Simian virus 40 from their vaccines in the year 2000. And that's when Mr. Kopp's paper was written. Now, I haven't seen anything since then to assure us that there's still no simian virus 40 in, in certain of those vaccines that we're using monkey kidneys. Because if you, first of all, if you don't know a virus is there, you can't test for it. And there's evidence that a more modern um, problem regarding the rotavirus vaccines for infants were two different kinds of pig virus that causes basically what, what, it, what looks like AIDS in pigs um, was present in that vaccine when it was released not that long ago. And uh, the, the manufacturing company didn't find this virus. Um, a third party who was just kind of off on a fishing expedition looking for, you know, what they call adventitious agents and different vaccines picked up this virus. Okay. So if this third party didn't pick it up, nobody would know about it. So they developed, you know, uh, a way to do polymerase chain reaction. So you have to, you have to have isolated a microbe and then developed a specific test to probe for the, for the genetic material. Um, in a certain microbe if you're going to look for it this way. So when it came to simian virus 40, they just didn't technology in the old days and the ways they were able to they were able to test for it was very crude and so even today we're seeing viruses slipping through the cracks and ending up in the end product of vaccines because they didn't think it was there they look for it, they didn't uh, test for it, didn't develop a test for it, or the test wasn't done rigorously enough um, after waiting for long enough in, in the vial. You know, you put the vial on the shelf and things, things still continue to change in that vaccine vial as it sits on the shelf before it gets injected, especially when it comes to live viral vaccines like rotavirus and like measles and mumps and rubella. Uh, so this is what I mean when I say I went down a bunny trail and I never came back. As you can probably um, intuit at this point, you know, there's so much um, that's gone on. And it's actually, you know, in a, in a strange way, it's, it's extremely interesting and, um, and compelling. And, and you, you just kind of sit there saying, what? How could this happen? I need to know more. Tell me more. And the, it, the information is available. That's the real irony is that it's available at our fingertips. As somebody who, who had access to a medical library, every doctor has access to the information I'm talking about. This isn't just um, conspiracy theory stuff that you find on social media. This is written about in our conventional medical literature by um, virologists and scientists that are prominent throughout the world. I'm speaking with physician, researcher, and author Dr. Suzanne Humphreys. Today's show, Honesty versus Policy, Vaccines and the Medical System. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Can SV40, the cancer-causing monkey virus, be passed on? Is it catchy? Yes. Um, yes, that's, that's been known for a long time that, um, you know, the best way to get it is to, you know, to be injected with it, which is how a lot of us got it. And then many of us also got it through the oral, the live oral polio vaccine. So you can also swallow it, but it can be passed on. They call it horizontally and vertically, meaning that um, if you have simian virus 40, your close contacts in your household will probably end up with it. And your children will probably end up with it because it's passed on in utero. So that's why we still have it, you know, in the population today in people who shouldn't have it because one of the stories in the virus in the vaccine book is about a baby who developed a brain tumor and it had SV40 in the brain tumor and she had not um, 
She had not been exposed to any vaccines that supposedly had simian virus 40 in it. But, you know, they talk about how it can, it can be passed through, um, through the system that way and that they also have been finding it in the vaccines that supposedly didn't have it. So it's, it's here to stay. We're not getting rid of SV40. It's, it's here. And it should be just in monkeys in their kidneys living in the jungle or even interfacing in society. People in India were not picking up SV40 even though the monkeys were living with them. You have to have pretty close contact in order to do that. And it was introduced into the human population by injecting a cultured monkey culture, um, basically fluid, into our systems, you know, generation after generation. And so if people tested for it, you would find that there would be um, a significant portion of our population today that's infected asymptomatically and probably will never have a problem with it, you know, at least an obvious problem with it. But we've got, we've got SV40 because of the polio vaccines. And again, this is well-established fact in our medical journals. If you go read about SV40, the first line of the, the medical journal article will say, this is a virus that was introduced to the human population through the polio vaccines. But then they'll say that that it was eliminated um, within years of its, um, of its discovery. And that's the part that's not true. It was not eliminated in, in lots of parts of the world, even up through the 1990s. And per Stanley Copps, there was still um, evidence of it being present in 2000. But at this point, it doesn't matter. We don't, need it. we don't need to inject it in our vaccines anymore. The human population's got SV40 and it's here to stay. Is it true that SV40 kidney research was ended in 1964? Well, it's really interesting because I've got some uh, medical articles here. Um, what, what really stopped around that era was when they were looking for cancer. Um, there are some articles by Dr. Harvey Shine, S-H-E-I-N, um, around 1962, where he talks about how the infection of human kidney cell cultures um, caused um, transformation. And basically what that meant was, was cancer. I mean, if you read the articles, which I have in my, in my presence, it caused them to, to, um, to mutate and change that they didn't look like kidney cells anymore. They, in their division process, they became mutant, transformed cells that were cancerous. Okay, so that's, that's basically in 1962. What I found lately, um, you know, there's lots of information on cancer regarding simian virus 40 and malignant mesotheliomas and brain tumors, and you can find that, you know, still going on. Look, there's a Dr. Key, QI, who researches with Dr. Carboni, Dr. Yang, Gaudano, and there's an article in 2011 called Simian Virus Transformation, Malignant Mesothelioma and Brain Tumors. And one of the interesting things it says in this paper um, it says that the controversy over the percent of tumor specimens containing SV40 DNA and proteins has paralyzed the research field. And it says that um, reviewers have been unwilling to support SV40 research, citing the need to first address the controversy. And then they say, but without funding, it's impossible to conduct studies to address controversial findings. So scientists now have their hands tied because they say it's too controversial. We first have to solve the controversy in order to continue the research, but we can't continue the research until we solve the controversy, but they're not willing to solve the controversy because there's no money. And so um, there's still some research, like there's some private research that I found looking at... Um, simian virus 40 in certain types of kidney pathology. Um, there's, uh, there's a disease called focal and segmental glomerulosclerosis that is, is one of the most common diseases um, in the kidneys today that causes um, loss of protein in, in, the, in the kidneys. 
and eventually causes kidney shutdown. There's a very high rate of people on dialysis from this particular type of kidney disease. And so we do have some research from that. And that's been done by um, Dr. Lee et al. It's L-I in the Journal of American Society of Nephrology, where they looked at simian virus 40 and kidney biopsies of people who had this Focalin segmental glomerulosclerosis. And they detected the virus in 60% of, of cases of Focalin segmental glomerulosclerosis. They also find it in another um, type called called membranous nephropathy. They find it in minimal change disease, which is something that we see in children quite often. Um, and so they started just now then looking at urine cells and simian virus 40 in healthy people and in um, focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. And they find it in 41% of urine samples of people who develop FSGS and only 4% of healthy volunteers. So it turns out that, you know, when you look at this data, you, you have to say that in my mind, you know, because I'm not funded by any pharmaceutical company who's paying me to counter this research. It's clear and present issue that there's some association between the presence of simian virus 40 and the development of certain types of kidney disease. And there's no denying um, its presence in relation to malignant mesothelioma, which is a certain type of lung tumor, and that it's in brain tumors. There are scientists, you know, in different parts of the world who at the same time have been reporting the same thing. And, you know, while, while, while it's still supposedly controversial, I don't, I don't see why, because they've got these biopsy specimens that contain simian virus 40, and oftentimes the tissue that surrounds these tumors doesn't have SV40, that it seems to have an affinity for the cells that end up transforming. Dr. Humphreys, can you describe what an adjuvant is that is used in vaccines, and why are they needed? Yes, good question. Um, adjuvant means helper. And basically, it is a substance that's put in a vaccine. Um, interestingly enough, because if I were to give a baby a vaccine for, say, whooping cough, which is a killed vaccine. So basically, these adjuvants are put in the killed vaccines. They're not put in the live vaccines. So there's no adjuvant in measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, rotavirus, oral polio. No adjuvant in those. But if you look at the common early, early given childhood vaccines like hepatitis B, hepatitis A, pneumococcus, haemophilus influenza B, um, and the diphtheria, tetanus, acellular pertussis vaccines, those all contain the adjuvant aluminum. And aluminum is considered safe um, because they say that you can eat it with no problem at all. And um, I have actually done a video, if you want to know more about my opinion and what I've discovered in the um, process of my research, it's called um, Aluminum is Toxic to All Life Forms. And it's available on my YouTube channel. And I talk about why it's not safe to give a newborn baby or even a two-month-old baby the dose of injected aluminum. It would be perfectly safe for them to swallow it in, in the form that we find it in the Earth's crust, which is bound with silica. But when you inject aluminum hydroxide or aluminum phosphate into a muscle, you cause um, basically a cytokine storm, an inflammatory storm in that muscle and in the body. And that's a desired effect by the vaccinologist because... If I were to take those vaccines and inject them without aluminum, nothing would happen because the natural blueprint of our immune system is such that we recognize these foreign particles. Um, there's, a, there's a researcher named Dr. Daria Kandu, K-A-N-D-U-C, in Italy, and some of her research is really amazing because what she's shown is that 
um, the microbes that are around us and even the toxoids and the toxins from, say, diphtheria and things like that, that the protein sequences in those microbes is so similar to the protein sequences in our bodies that our immune systems will not always recognize them except for under certain circumstances when they become invasive. So what's more important in a developing immune system is to learn what not to react to rather than to learn what to react to. So under normal circumstances, a baby's immune system is programmed, developmentally programmed to be anti-inflammatory. Everything in a pregnant mother in their uterus and placenta and those stem cells and her breast milk is programmed to keep that baby in an anti-inflammatory state. And that's why a baby will not react to a vaccine. So that's why they had to put aluminum into these vaccines in order to rev up this baby's immune system and cause inflammation because it wouldn't happen normally. So that's why these adjuvants are there. And they're even in the adult vaccines because still as adults, our immune systems are, are set up to not react to everything. Otherwise, we'd have far more autoimmune diseases than we already do have. You know, everybody thinks the immune system is there um, to attack. But one of the major jobs and probably more important is to learn what not to attack. Because as Paul Offit will tell you, we are exposed to enormous amounts of antigen, not only in utero, but from the time we are born. So out of one side of his mouth, he's telling us that babies can tolerate 10,000 to 100,000 vaccines at once because babies are exposed to so many antigens at once. And out of the other side of his mouth, he's telling you that your baby is so crippled and inept that it can't tolerate the regular microbes in, in the world because he doesn't understand maternal protection, basically, and because he's got a vaccine patent and is on a war path. But that's why we have adjuvants in our vaccines. It's to, it's to create a bonfire of inflammation within our system. And the primary adjuvant that's used today is aluminum. They've been looking for other adjuvants. They've come up with squalene and, you know, different kinds of oils, mineral oil. But what happens is, is horrible, horrible, you know, worse than even aluminum, you know, either necrosis at the um, injection site or autoimmune diseases like happened. Gulf War syndrome is basically, um, it's an autoimmune disease that happened because of the squalene that was used in the, in the shots that were given to the soldiers before they went abroad. So these adjuvants have been a problem from the beginning because what you're doing with vaccination, um, and then when you add adjuvants, you're doing something that the immune system was never intended to do. Well, what are the different types of adjuvants used, and do they serve different purposes? No, they all serve the same purpose. Let me just uh, give you uh, an example. So the pertussis vaccine, pertussis is a bacteria and it contains lots of different um, what we call antigens on the surface of the bacteria that your immune system will recognize and respond to. It, and it secretes toxins that um, your immune system will eventually respond to. So when you want to make a vaccine, in the old days what they did is they took the whole bacteria and they killed it and then they injected it into babies. And, and because it had so many antigens on it, it was highly reactogenic and there were lots of brain problems. And that's why we switched over to what we call the acellular vaccine. So what they've now done is they've taken a couple of the different antigens from the outside of the bacteria and one of the toxins, um, pertussis toxin, they've inactivated the toxin and that's what's in your vaccine today. So that's why it's called the acellular vaccine. So because it's less antigenic, um, in, in order to compensate for that, they have to rev up the immune system um, to, to really overreact to what's been injected. And, and the same goes for um, the diphtheria toxoid that's inactivated and the tetanus toxoid that's inactivated. The same goes for the uh, what are called subunit vaccines, which are like the um, 
you know, the pneumococcal vaccines and Haemophilus influenza B, these subunit vaccines, that's really what it means is that they take a piece off of a bacteria or in the case of the flu, you know, a virus, but they don't need adjuvant for the flu vaccines. They only really need it for these bacterial vaccines that your body otherwise wouldn't respond to just these little pieces. And they find that there's nothing that works better and that according to them is safer than aluminum, although we don't have any safety studies. They consider aluminum as GRAS, generally regarded as safe, because um, they say that it's safe to eat. And I really go through this in my video about why um, that's flawed logic, because you know, when you eat something, about, you know, 0.4% is absorbed and it's absorbed in a form that you can handle that goes through the liver and, and can be detoxified. But when you inject something, um, it's 100% absorbed and it's not in the form that you find in the Earth's crust that's basically bound and inactive and it's ready to, um, to bind to proteins in your body. So aluminum is a highly, you know, if you look at it on the periodic table, it's, it's charges plus three. And it's highly positively charged, which means that it has a strong attraction to negatively charged substances in the body. And your cell membranes and your proteins are often highly negatively charged. And so it really bonds quite heavily and displaces other minerals out of your system, like magnesium and sulfur. And so uh, in, in doing so, it inactivates enzymes and it causes proteins not to work properly. All of your enzymes are proteins, so your enzymes aren't going to function normally again. But because it does the trick that they want it to do with the immune system, they continue giving it. And the Cochrane Collaborative Database um, did a study not that long ago um, looking for the safety just in one vaccine of the aluminum. And they said that there's very, there's very little data to show that it's safe, but they didn't recommend um, doing any further research. And the reason they stated was because um, there's no other adjuvant that's readily available and the vaccine program would take too much of a hit if aluminum was removed and we can't afford to have public opinion decline over the vaccine, the, the vaccine program. I'm speaking with physician, researcher, and author, Dr. Suzanne Humphreys. Today's show... Honesty versus Policy, Vaccines and the Medical System. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Do different vaccines have the same adjuvant? Yes. Yes. I mean, there are some like, okay, you probably heard about the problems over in Norway with the narcolepsy after being given flu shots in these kids a few years ago. And they used a different adjuvant. Um, I'm trying to think. I think they used squalene in that vaccine. Um, but you know, that's the, that's the problem is they're continuing to seek different adjuvants. You know, they've looked at, looked to try to find, you know, basically toxin called lipopolysaccharide because that's something the body will respond. But it's so toxic that it's actually even worse than aluminum, if, you know, to the degree that they've got it developed today. They've looked at using a different kind of antibody like immunoglobulin M, IgM, to use that as a as an adjuvant, because that's pretty much the first part of your immune response when you're infected with something is IgM. So there's some, there's some research into using IgM as an adjuvant. So they're continuing to look aggressively um, because there's more and more, you know, knowledge now that, you know, this whole idea of aluminum being safe is absolutely false. And they, they say that it's removed from your body within 24 hours. Well, the studies that they have to show that are basically putting an incredibly tiny amount intravenously in a form of aluminum citrate into an adult and following it. Now that's not what happens when you inject it into a baby. Baby's kidneys are not um, normally functioning like an adult, so they're not gonna get rid of it even if it was unbound. 
in the bloodstream. Um, it's not bound to citrate in a baby. It's bound to phosphate and to hydroxide. And they give 0.7 micrograms to the adult, but they're giving up to 1,200 micrograms to babies. So, you know, the studies that they have, when you really break them down and look at them and compare them to what, what reality is, um, it's completely different. So they've really never done a proper safety study. Looking at aluminum excretion in babies, there was one Dr. Movsis, M-O-V-S-A-S, and this, this lady did a pretty good study where she injected the usual vaccines into a two-month-old that have 1,200 micrograms of aluminum. And she found that, um, that it didn't come out in the urine and it didn't show up in the bloodstream. And so she's questioned, where could it be? <laughs> if it didn't come out in the urine and it didn't show up in the bloodstream, that means that it was taken up by the immune cells, like by the macrophages. And we've got now a study by Khan, K-H-A-N, in 2013 that shows that aluminum is transported across the brain in these specialized Im immune cells. And so aluminum is retained in the body, regardless of what anybody wants to tell you. It's retained in the body no matter what your kidney function is, but especially if you've got low kidney function. But even if you don't, um, it's not rapidly excreted. It's not safe to be injected. And um, there's lots of evidence that's coming out of Israel from Yehuda Schoenfeld that's been doing some good work showing the, the autoimmune problems that are inherent um, with this not only the disease particles, but the adjuvant, the aluminum adjuvants, as a, as a likely cause of, of much of the autoimmune disease that we see today because of what it does to the immune system, which is basically interrupts the quiescent program that we're supposed to have um, unless there's a serious emergency. And so it basically is, is telling your body that it's in a state of emergency um, when it's really not. Can you describe how vaccines are evaluated for safety? Well... They're evaluated in different ways for safety. Um, you know, they have to first, you know, trial them out in animals, and then they have to trial them out into humans under different circumstances. And what they usually end up, like the best, you know, the best place they end up, I should say, as far as, you know, trying to prove their safety is, is that they'll look at them in healthy humans. Very rarely will they look at, at the effect of vaccines in unhealthy humans or even in, say, dialysis patients or kidney failure patients like the ones I was dealing with. Um, so when I complained that there were no studies to prove the safety of injecting my patients with vaccines, what the consultant who was hired to set me straight um, handed me was a, um, a list of um, vaccine studies in HIV patients. So that was supposed to quiet me down, that, look, we've shown that vaccines are safe if you have AIDS or if you have blah, blah. But they, they really only follow people out for 24 hours. At best, they'll follow them out for a couple of weeks. One I saw followed out for four weeks. Um, so that's one of the problems is that they're, they're looked at in healthy people and then we're told that we need to give sick people these vaccines. And sometimes later on after they've you know, gotten policy written to give it to sick people, they will, they will maybe do a trial looking at sick people, but they almost always will find that it's perfectly safe. And if you dissect the studies and look at how they're done, um, they have some usually very tricky statistics, um, often that you won't be able to understand, and sometimes that you can understand and you see that they actually will toss data out if it's inconvenient. And that's one of the things that Dr. Um, William Thompson has reported from the CDC, where he's still employed. And he said that they tossed out the inconvenient data looking at the autism rates after measles, mumps, rubella vaccine in African-American boys, and where there was actually a 300% higher rate of autism in those, um, in those boys, and uh, that they reevaluated the data. And there's lots of evidence. If you look, you know, look at the Simpson Wood transcripts and, and other 
credible documents from insiders at the CDC that inconvenient data is often um, massaged or thrown out. So we can't necessarily trust the people that are doing the research because unfortunately academia and government and industry are all basically one functioning unit. And so one hand usually pats the other because the money is shared between them. Uh, so that's one of the issues. One of the other big issues with vaccines are the placebos that are used. And placebos are supposed to be inert substances that are indistinguishable from the interventional substance that has no benefit and no harm. And so that technically, when you're doing a vaccine study, should be saline, placebo. But what we find in the majority of studies is that, say you're studying a flu vaccine, what your um, placebo will be is hepatitis A vaccine or um, another year's flu shot. Um, or if you're studying um, some of the other childhood vaccines, what you're going to find is that, you know, you, you could be studying a pneumococcal vaccine and, and the placebo will be a hepatitis B vaccine. And when you ask why, they, they will tell you that it's because they don't want to deprive the, the side that's not getting the study drug of something that could benefit them, which really makes no sense. If you go to a website called clinicaltrials.gov, you can look at um, all the clinical trials that are going on regarding any um, drug or vaccine. And you can look at ones that have been completed, ones that are still in process, and you can look at how they're designed. And some of them are um, completed and, and you can see what the placebos were used and you can see who the subjects were, what the exclusion criteria are, which is really interesting because usually the exclusion um, would exclude a lot of people that these vaccines are being recommended to. And then... Um, if you look at the placebos, it's hardly ever, um, when you look at a vaccine trial, is the placebo a saline placebo? Even, you know, if you look at the Gardasil trials, they were, there were three different kinds of uh, supposed placebo, and, and only the vast minority actually used a saline placebo. Um, the rest were using the background substance of the Gardasil vaccine. So um, when you do that, when you don't use a pure placebo, and you use something that does have an effect then the difference that you'll note between the two arms will be less and it will make the vaccine look better. So that's one of my main complaints about um, vaccine science. Do doctors have a requirement to report vaccine injuries? No, there's no requirement whatsoever. And most of them, let me tell you what happened when I re reported my vaccine injuries is um, that once I learned about it and once I started asking, you know, part of a history and physical examination should be when was your last vaccine. So I started to include that in my history. And I started making connections that I was told were wrong. But if you look at the timelines, like I looked at in the hospital, I would see, you know, an injection being given and often, you know, the kidney failure that happened in the hospital happened within 24 hours of that injection. So when I started making these reports, because my colleagues wouldn't make them, or because in one instance, a dialysis tech started to develop seizures a day after he was um, vaccinated, I, I made that report. So I had a, a higher than normal amount of reports for a single physician in a short amount of time. So the CDC kept calling me, and they kept telling me that um, and somebody else would be calling. And then I would talk to the somebody else, and the somebody else would tell me somebody else would be calling. And this went on and on. And actually, honestly, I did get a little bit nervous because it was creepy. And then finally, I ended up with the, the head of the CDC in Maine, where I lived at the time. And, um, you know, he started asking me the usual questions. And then, you know, he kind of turned a bit and he said, so what happened to you? 
And I said, what do you mean what happened to me? And he said, well, what happened to you to all of a sudden make you start being critical about vaccines? And I said, what happened was there were patients that were telling me they were fine until they had their last vaccine. And he said, well, people are going to say that, but it doesn't mean that it's related to the vaccine. And I said, well, you know, when I look at a package insert, say, from an inhaled live flu vaccine, and it says not to be around a sick person for 21 days or a susceptible person, to me that says that the vaccine can be shed, um, the inhaled flu vaccines, and can be infective. And he said, that's absolutely not true. That's my area of research, and, and that doesn't happen. And I just thought at that point, I said, you know what? I think you and I don't have anything left to talk about. But, you know, had I been somebody who was more fearful of authority and who could be easily intimidated, that might have been the end of my reporting career. <laughs> if you just report one every now and again, you're not going to have a problem. But if you're regularly reporting all the adverse events that could possibly be happening in your presence, you're likely going to end up drawing attention to yourself through the CDC. And you're likely, if you start criticizing vaccines publicly, you're going to be called a quack. And a lot of doctors are afraid of that. Calling a doctor a quack for some reason really hits a raw, open nerve. It never actually bothered me because, you know, the truth was always more important than a name that uh, people who were trying to manipulate me would use. But for a lot of doctors, that means a lot because they're sitting there with millions of dollars of debt from medical school and a family and a big house that requires a big mortgage payment. And they're dependent on their big fat paycheck every week. And so, you know, it's easy to threaten doctors to say that, you know, your license could be revoked or if you're acting like a, what they consider a quack or if you get the CDC to be suspicious about you. It's very easy to intimidate doctors that way. They're very scared. They don't want that. Um, so I think that's part of why in the environment that we see today with vaccines, why so many doctors really just don't want to be involved unless they, maybe they're at the end of their career and they're thinking about retiring anyway. I get a lot of um, mail from these kinds of doctors saying, um, I read your book and thank you. I had no idea. And fortunately, I'm at the end of my career where I don't have to be afraid. But the younger doctors, forget it. You're not going to get them on board with this. Dr. Suzanne Humphreys, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. Suzanne Humphreys. Today's show has been Honesty versus Policy, Vaccines and the Medical System. Dr. Suzanne Humphreys is a medical doctor, internist, and board-certified nephrologist currently in private practice. She is co-author of Dissolving Illusions, Disease, Vaccines, and the Forgotten History. Currently, the California legislature is fast-tracking two vaccine Senate bills. SB 277 will eliminate the personal belief and religious exemptions from vaccines required for children to attend public and private school. SB 792 will require CDC-prescribed adult immunization of child care workers, with the exception of flu vaccine. Visit drsuzanne.net, that's D-R-S-U-Z-A-N-N-E dot N-E-T and visit DissolvingIllusions.com. That's DissolvingIllusions.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaro Mako, and Tony Rango. Email me at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit gunsandbutter.org to sign up for our email list to receive our newsletter. Guns and Butter Online now includes a new website, an active Twitter feed, show archives, and a blog. Follow us at G and B Radio. Hey yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? 
the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind. If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now, if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself for peace.